Welcome to the Hank and Herb Show. My name is Andre Chemo Stone Guest, and I am one of three hosts of this esteemed podcast. I'm calling in from Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville, Kentucky, home of Muhammad Ali. I know that some of you all are going to say something else about my hometown, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> from Baltimore, we got my main man, Haroon Shabazz. Brother Shabazz, what's going on? Salam alaikum, brother. I'm Islam, black man, and we got Chris Fun in the Witness Protection Program. Where you at today, Chris? I'm safe, man. I'm right outside of DC, but I'm safe. You, you know, safe? Baltimore. You know, Baltimore. I'm from Baltimore. I'm not there now. Baltimore lives in my heart, brother. Baltimore here lives in your. I'm glad to hear that, bro. I'm glad to hear you safe out here, man, because it ain't safe out here. <laughs> today we have a special guest joining us from uh, the little state with a big heart. We got my main man, writer, critic. Eugene Holly Jr. What's going on, Eugene? Oh, what's happening, man? It's a privilege and a pleasure just to be here, man. Privilege and a pleasure. Thank you. Tell them where you're calling in from, brother. Wilmington, Delaware. Wilmington, the home Delaware. of Joe Biden. Yes, that's Uncle Joe's homeboy right there. Joe. Uncle Joe's home. Yeah, I'm 15 minutes from his house even as we speak. All right. Okay, wow. baby. So, I mean, so he's in his uh, he's in his basement right now. So maybe you should take your phone <laughs> to the house and he could join. You could join the show with us right now. Talk about this stuff. <laughs> well, I'm trying. I'm trying to get. His, I'm trying to get his. I'm trying to get his campaign to adopt the Chuck Brown version of "Run Joe" as a song. You know what I mean? "Run Joe." <laughs> there, there you go. Well, you know one, yeah. one little known fact that we haven't really talked about on the Hank and Herb show, and the reason I'm going to bring it up now is because there's something that all three of you all have in common. You all went to Howard University. Oh, we in here. Hey. Yeah, that's it's right. right. H H U. You know Howard University. That's right. The extraterrestrial brothers. That's right. Kamala, Kamala Harris. I, like I like I told you, Andre. I she's four years younger than me. I actually saw her on campus. I didn't know her, but I saw her on campus. And the irony of people. And let me just say this: the irony of people questioning her blackness. When I talked to my friends about Kamala, they said she didn't stand out. And you know why she didn't stand out at Howard? Because she was one of thousands of young, beautiful black sisters. End of end of rant. And and that's true. I was on a debate team at the time that she was on the debate team. And I remember her as being very quiet. She was a quiet person, especially we on a debate team, supposed to be a bunch of loud mouths. But she was very mm -hmm. young at the time. And so she was one of the quiet people. But there you have it, right? So on today's show, we're going to talk about um, two things, and they're, they're uh, basically the same. We're going to talk about Stanley Crouch, my dear friend Stanley Crouch, who passed away uh, earlier this week, and uh, what his impact was on the arts, on the role of criticism, on dealing with the American Negro. We're going to have a little discussion about him, a little back and forth, and then we're going to pivot in terms of who Stanley Crouch was and what he represents in a broader sense. And that is the role of the black critic, the role of black intelligentsia in dealing with issues of the Negro uh, in terms of inside the, uh, the cookout, as they call it, or, and also as a, their role in terms of the broader uh, culture. So uh, Brother Eugene wrote a, a great piece for ESPN's The Undefeated about um, about Brother Crouch. It was called, I Saw a Different Side of Stanley Crouch. So Eugene, why don't you tell us about how, you know, how you knew Crouch and uh, what you were dealing with in that piece for The Undefeated? 
Well, you know, let, let me first say the reason how I came to that piece was um, is they actually asked a fellow writer of, of, a critic of, that I know I respect named Ted Goya to write an appreciation. He said he was busy and uh, for reasons I can't comprehend, he recommended me. And uh, that's how I got to the undefeated. Uh, I knew Stanley. I first met Stanley through his writing for Wynton Marsalis' liner notes. Didn't, you know, when I was discovering what jazz was in the early 80s, I was reading all the liner notes I could get for at least four or five years. You know, I, I always tell people it takes about, if you're going to write about jazz, it takes about four or five years if you're starting from scratch to to um, to learn the, the history through recordings, whatever. So in doing so, you know, reading about Wynton, I, I was reading Stanley Crouch. And one of the things that, that really struck me was, you know, when you're writing liner notes, you're writing about the music and you're writing about the artist. But with Stanley, and even then, you know, I didn't know as much as I do now, I realized that when Stanley was talking about Wynton and talking about the music, he was bringing in a whole bunch of other stuff like literature and history and art appreciation in the liner notes. And I had never seen anything like that before. And it was just compelling to read him. And that, that was when I was deciding at some point, maybe I can be a writer. So I've always looked at Stanley as a guide, but, uh, fast forward to 1987, I, I I'm working at national public radio. I'm filing pieces for morning edition show featuring Bob Edwards. And I'm doing my own arts pieces on jazz musicians. Well, 1987, I believe was the 20th anniversary of Billy Strayhorn's death. And um, they suggested that I use a critic for my appreciation piece, and we were able to get in touch with Stanley. So that's how I formally met him. And we, we continued to talk. And then later, I used Stanley in a piece that I did on Charlie Hayden, when Charlie Hayden's Quartet West Ensemble first came on the scene. So I had Charlie talk, I had Stanley talk about Charlie Hayden and his, and his whole link to Ornette Coleman and the avant-garde and such. And that's how we started talking. Um, and Stanley was always, the one thing I wanted to stress in the piece, everybody knows about, you know, the, the side of Stanley that was combative and pugilistic. And all I wanted to do was say that that is true, but this was another side of uh, Stanley. The original, by the way, the original uh, title of it, of my piece was a tone parallel with Stanley Crouch um, an appreciation, but they decided to change that. Um, so I wanted people to know that while this guy had this one side, he had another side and that's all I was trying to convey. And I, and I have to say that of the people that I've, um, that have helped me through the years in, in terms of writing, you know, my writing elders, Stanley never wavered. He never was not supportive of me. He, he always has something positive and critical to say critical in a good sense, you know, never trying to put me down, always was trying to, um, to make sure that I was developing my voice. See, that last part is important because sometimes in New York City, in the literary world, a lot of people who are established want the younger person to really kind of extend what they're doing, not finding that person's voice. And some people, they don't, they don't realize they're doing it. That's just the way it is in New York City. But Stanley was always, um, he was always encouraging me to find my own my own voice, my own sound, and, and I and I appreciate him for that. Yes, yeah, Stanley was um, you 
you uh, you stood on one side or the other with Stanley, and many people did. They either, you know, he was one of those polarizing figures. A lot of people didn't like him, and then and certain people loved him. It's just like you, unlike you know, like Stanley. Stanley had a lot of opinions. So if you ask somebody who knew him or knew of his work, they they weren't going to be lukewarm about him. They were going to have an opinion about what it is that he was dealing with. I wrote a piece on uh, on on my blog, Educated Guesses, uh, that you can check out. Well, check out Eugene's piece first of all. On, Go to theundefeated.com and check out his piece. Uh, but there's a piece I wrote called uh, Stanley Crouch, Straight No Chaser, where I, I talk about my relationship with him. I, I got an opportunity to know Stanley pretty well when I was at Jazz at Lincoln Center, and I got to know him even better after I left in the early 2000s. And I used to speak to him regularly, but not really about writing, because I wasn't doing a lot of writing at the time, although I was writing. And he was just a great guy to talk to, to have a, you know, a... Um, a discussion about anything that you want to talk about. So just talking with him helped me to really uh, gather my thoughts and really understand how I might want to attack a subject one way or the other. And so he really helped me in organizing how I thought in order to be able to get it down on paper and write. And he was always a real big champion for my son, who um, I talk about in the piece when we went over to Stanley's house one day and hung out and they had a very interesting discussion about Ralph Ellison's book, Invisible Man. So now, Chris, you know, you being a jazz musician, um, you, uh, you, I think you don't, I don't think you ever met him personally, but you had to have run into him. And of course, you knew his work. You couldn't escape that being a jazz musician. What are, what are your impressions of Brother Crouch? I actually, actually, I think I'm of a different time, honestly. <laughs> Not to say that I'm young, but I always knew him of this as this iconic figure. But for me, I always thought he was more of a, I mean, he was almost like a philosopher and a, and a commentator on, on like society to me than actual music by the time I was aware of, of who he was, honestly. Like I'm not of the age where, you know, you get your album reviewed and it makes a break of your career. Like I'm a little, I'm right. I think I'm right after that era really took, was, was substantial, you know? So when you heard that Stanley had passed, what, sort of recollection or memory or impression first came to your mind about him? You know, the longest I ever heard him speak, because I, I, I didn't read any of his books, but I, I, I remember I watched this really long interview with him once. And, you know, it was kind of like, he reminded me of like the, you know, the, the black intellectuals of the past. And I think like, He's kind of a throwback, you know, the way he spoke and, and how almost every topic they threw at him, he had an interesting perspective on that really opened your brain up to think about it different. It was almost like watching a Baldwin interview, you know? Oh, yeah. When, I mean, he knew so much about so many things. He was an autodidact. He didn't, he wasn't quote unquote formally educated. He, you know, he didn't get a degree from a university, although he was teaching students at universities, which is really interesting. I mean, the guy just had a, a broad perspective on so many subjects, which informed his criticism and his work. Uh, now, now, Brother Shabazz, you and I have talked about Crouch uh, for, for years in terms of his work and what he's dealing with. What were your impressions of him when you heard that he had passed away? Well, you know, Crouch, Brother Crouch, he, he was a Renaissance man, right? He could, like um, Chris was saying, that he could talk about anything, anywhere. But um, for me, my, um, my first introduction to Crouch was his social commentary, what he was saying about the Black experience, what he was saying about other Black people. 
and um he was he was a, pro a provocateur right i mean he was um he was constantly trying to in my opinion rile people up you know john lewis talks about looking for good trouble mm -hmm. i don't know if crouch was looking for good trouble he definitely in my opinion he was definitely looking for trouble <laughs> and in the process of looking for trouble he got a lot of people riled up and this is what i would say say about crowds a lot of times it's it's not necessarily what you say but it's how you say it that's the key now, if, if i would describe crouch's philosophy i would say that he was a bootstrapper one of these people that in, encouraged black folks to pick themselves up by by the by by the string of their boots and there were other people who were bootstrappers right along with him you know marcus garvey malcolm x to name a few but their approach was different right they will tell black folks that hey listen um they will recognize all the evils of racism and then turn around and tell black folks the way to deal with that is not begging or asking or protesting but to go out and get your own and it seemed like when Stanley Crouch made those particular points, people took it, they were under the impression that he was giving an excuse to racism or denying that racism even existed. And I think that that's, it's amazing how the two, if you played some of what Malcolm X or Elijah Muhammad or a lot of people in the nation of Islam was doing at the time, and you go back during, during the days of Marcus Garvey, a lot of this pull yourself out by the strings of your bootstraps was just the way they were going. Stanley Crouch comes along with a similar message, but because he seemed to not have empathy for people who were catching hell, he was looked upon as, as, as not a good force in the black community. So Crouch would say things out loud that many people actually thought in their minds, but would never say out loud. Haroon, you, you call it the social contract. It's a social contract that we are to behave ourselves in a certain way so as to not do, some people call it on the extreme side of they call it political correctness, right? But the social contract is to say, you know what? We understand certain things may be this or that, but that doesn't mean you need to say it out loud and be bold about it. But Crouch said a lot of things about a lot of things and a lot of people that many of us in our own minds and behind closed doors with one another may have discussed and said worse, but he just said it out loud. So Eugene, talk about that aspect of, uh, of him and, and what responsibility he, he had to either say those things or not say them. Well, he had the responsibility to represent himself and how he felt about those things, but I think it is important. Let's use the example of my, the biggest example was Miles Davis. Now, we all know that uh, the standard line is, you know, Stanley uh, was down with Miles until 1969, until the, the Bitches Brew album ushered in the whole sort history of fusion. And Miles Davis is to blame for that, you know, from, from Stanley's point of view. Well the, well, the interesting thing about that, and I've interviewed musicians for over 30 years, and a lot of black musicians felt Miles you know, abandon real jazz, you know, for something else. That's not, so what's interesting about what Stanley was saying is that he didn't start that. A lot of musicians, a lot of famous ones were very angry at Miles for the direction that he went in and did not like that kind of music. So that wasn't something he created, but what Stanley did, he took it so far 
to a stratosphere we have never seen before in literature. I mean, the, the standard uh, departure for his uh, thing on Miles was his, the infamous piece in the New Republic, Sketches of Pain, The Rise and Fall of Miles Davis. That was the major essay where he declared for the whole world, hey, look, this is what I think about Miles's, you know, post-1969 period. And, uh, but, 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 you know, and then, you know, when it branches over into other black social issues, again, a lot of what Crouch was saying wasn't something that was novel to him. Um, it, there was also the element for people perceive Stanley, and I'm, and I'm choosing my words very carefully, people perceive a level of traitorship with him because early in his career when he came to New York, he came to New York from California with people like David Murray and people like Flautus James Newton and trumpeter Bobby Bradford, people on more on the so-called avant-garde side of the music. He was a champion of that. He was a big champion of David Murray. And uh, and then by the by 1979 or 80, he meets Winton. And uh, there's a change in his writing. There's a change in it. There's a change in his aesthetic as people thought there was that, you know, some people actually went out to say that, that he saw a gold mine in Winton and changed his whole philosophy. I don't believe that to be true in the literal sense. But uh, so there's a level of traitorship that people saw in Stanley that adds fuel to the fire when he's uh, criticizing someone like Miles Davis or saying that Toni Morrison's Beloved was a Holocaust novel. Right. When you say stuff like that, um, you're going to get incoming. Well, you know, interestingly, you know, you talk about um, a change, right? And one of the things that I mentioned in the piece that I wrote, I called him a true believer. And what I meant by that was whatever he believed in at the time, he believed in it and he put one foot in front of the other and he didn't care what or who was in his way. He was going to go, go in that direction. And he, you know, clearly changed his mind because he was also a black nationalist. And then he went 180 degrees away from that. And what's interesting is that people have a tendency sometimes, we as human beings, I put myself in that number as well, to hold someone's position in the past against them, even though they have publicly said that they've changed their mind. So I'm going to switch to you, Brother Chris, because I think you are, uh, are aware of this, this thing that has gone on where people have actually done something in the past that was a mistake and a public thing that they've done in the past that is a mistake. And then people are still holding it against them, even though they may be actually going in the in opposite direction of what that mistake was. Chris? <laughs> what are you, who are you referring to? Well, I don't want to go deep down the rabbit hole of politics on this particular uh. one, but there is a <laughs> gentleman who's in the Black intelligentsia critic role of Eddie Gloud, who you have publicly criticized in relation to his stance of what he has talked about in 2016 when he said he wouldn't vote for Hillary. And now people are, now he's saying that everybody should vote. He's taking the exact opposite stance that he took in 2016. And people are mad at him because of what he did in 2016 and saying they don't want to hear anything that he has to say. So I don't necessarily want to go down the road of, of what he said and what he didn't say. But the real question is when somebody changes, should they not be allowed to change and be and deal with things based upon the change? Because in Crouch's change, he has an he has a, a history of being on the line of what he changed into. 
Now I can understand that once you change, you don't have that history. So where, where's the continuum on that? At what point do we give somebody the benefit of the doubt of their change? I don't, I don't see much change in Crouch, but in terms of that question, no, I don't he, think he was a black nationalist at one point in time, and he also was an avant-garde guy, and he went to criticize both of those things. So yeah, there was a big change in him historically because he was on the other side of the thing that he actually became. So that's the change in Crouch. Right, but just, right, but just like, like Glau, like the person you are, I think, still remains. So just because, you know, you, you're, you're saying something about something you used to be a part of, I don't think you, you're, you're actually changing that much in terms of who you are. I think you're just more so developing uh, a, a different perspective. But in terms of like people not wanting to hear you anymore, I don't think that's true either. Like nobody is silencing, nobody really silenced, crouched. You couldn't. Nobody is really silencing Eddie Glaude. But I think it's just in terms of like people, your, your words and your messages will be heard by the way you say them. If you say, if you've made a mistake or you've changed, but you've not acknowledged it, you know, or addressed it, then that's a whole different conversation. And I think that is really the issue that I think exists. If you don't acknowledge it or, or, uh, or, or speak on it just as much and strongly as you do before, you know? I just want to weigh in for something about the issue about nationalism and Stanley Crouch. The way that I see it, I think Stanley Crouch was still a black nationalist, but what he he was criticizing certain things that he thought were limiting in the black nationalist scene that he grew up with in California at the time. He saw limitations because look at this is the same man who co-founded Jazz at Lincoln Center, which at the time of his founding, all the all the most of the musicians were black. This was a this was a major jazz organization founded by three black people. And they said that these that Ellington, Strayhorn, Jelly Roll Morton, these black people are going to be the icons that we build Lincoln Center on. That's a very, very nationalist move. It's a very nationalist thing. In New York City, mind you, at that time, that was unheralded. So I think that those I think there was a certain now the nationalism that Stanley was that 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 went to was more of a humanistic kind of thing. I think um, he was. I think he was like Du Bois. The fact that 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 there are black people who had European influences, you know, and they can still be black. Like the the uh, the Du Bois quote: "I sit with Shakespeare and he winces not." I think Stanley felt it felt more in line with that that his blackness didn't 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 really rule out influences from other cultures, you know? So I do think there was still a certain nationalism that was still in him, but he was looking for a way not to be held in by some of the limitations that he, that he thought that he saw in the black nationalism he grew up with in California and in New York in the seventies. That's my take. Brother Eugene, um, I agree with you a hundred percent. Cause if you think about it, right. Um, a lot of the things like this so this this whole notion this philosophy that black folks should exercise take responsibility and exercise a certain amount of autonomy right and responsibility for their own path in life this type of thing um that's black nationalism all the way right and i mm -hmm. think his tone changed over time you know what's odd about this 
believe it, what, what, whatever we think about Clarence Thomas today, right? Clarence Thomas history, and this is not to take up for Clarence Thomas because I think he's been up to a lot of terrible things that are not in the interest of black folks. But Clarence Thomas back in the day was, um, he was, he, he prescribed to black nationalism. He prescribed, so his friends say he was running around talking about Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam and all of those other things. And mm -hmm. then, and if you look at Clarence Thomas today, all of his decisions are this, that anytime black folks come to the Supreme Court asking the white people to give them something, right? Whether it's any type of affirmative action, whether it's some type of break in the criminal justice system, he rules against them every time. And, 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 and of course, some people can look at this, well, he's very hostile to the interests of black folks, but the way Clarence will look at this is that he's doing black people a favor because he's cutting them off. He wants them to stand up for themselves. He wants them to do their own thing. What astonishes his friends is that at one moment, um, you know, he was talking about all of these ideas of black nationalism, and then, and then they look up today, and this is what he's into, and they can't reconcile the two, but they're not really understanding what you're saying, Eugene. Both things were there the whole time. Well, I think, I think what I, I think, I think what it really is, is we, we, we have a habit of judging human beings this way too. We don't look at the goal. Like if the goal is to get to Detroit, you could start that journey off in a Toyota you could, and you could end up there in a Hyundai, you know, but like we, a lot of times as human beings, we'll judge the car you came in. But like the, the, the bottom line is like, I feel like either one of these men are all about the goal of black empowerment. Like Stanley Crouch mm -hmm. might, might be like, I'm trying to get black empowerment, but the way I'm saying it is that, you know, we can address black issues as, as American issues, or, you know, it's not about only black issues. Right. And like Clarence Thomas is trying to get in black, black empowerment too. And it's like, I'm not trying to say that, you know, it's the white man's fault, you know? It's, it's about the goal, really. That's why I'm like, I don't think these people are really changing much. Well, that, that's why I, when I said I call Crouch a true believer, because whatever he believed in, he was marching forward towards Detroit, as you called it, in that way. You may not agree with what vehicle he was in, or you may not agree with what he was saying while he was heading there, but he was going in that direction. So the, the question for us, particularly as it relates to the black voices, the black critic, the black intelligentsia, is there's an, there's an effort or a movement afoot to be right, right? And then there's another one to get it right. And sometimes, you know, the message, sometimes people will get caught in their attempts to be right. Even those who criticize others and those who criticize the critic, it's a matter of, aha, you're wrong. But the question is, how can we get it right together if our goal is to get to Detroit, Chris? No, it's like if, but but it's still an element of if I call you to paint. I, I know you hate my uh, analogies, but if no, I call you, I love your analogies, brother. <laughs> if I call you, if I call you to paint my house, man, and you keep painting it the wrong color, it has to be a point where I have to be like Andre, stop. You can't paint my house no more. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to look in other other direction. Someone else has to lead this this contracting project for painting my house. Now you can help paint, but you're no longer going to lead this this. Uh, well, 
Well, let's take let's take that let's take that analogy for a second. If one of the reasons you want your house painted is to protect the wood from the winter, right? Okay, <laughs> not not from an aesthetic standpoint because you want a yellow house, and I keep painting it gray. But you you should also acknowledge the fact that I protected the wood from winter. Yes, Even that is I that's like true. The way it looked. Hey, that's true. Great. Listen, here's the thing, right? <laughs> and I think the criticism of Stanley Crouch and and Clarence Thomas and those type of people of the world, if people really step back and say, okay, let's give them um, good intentions, that the goal was about black empowerment, right? What people would accuse, particularly Clarence Thomas of, is practicing bad medicine, right? You may operate on me or whatever, to, and your goal is, is to cure me or whatever the deal is, but you're just a bad doctor. This is not a good process. This is not the way to get it done. And the same thing you could say about Stanley Crouch, that when he came out with these provocative statements, criticisms of people, tearing them down at the root, and then he, and, and his defense is, is I'm telling the truth, right? This type of thing. Everybody's defense is, well, people can tell the truth about a lot of things, right? They could tell the truth about somebody doing something horrible and embarrassing or terrible, but that doesn't mean that it should be out there for public consumption. And, that, and I think that's the deal is because if you know that if you put something out there and all it is is going just to, it's just going to blow the situation up, it's just going to make a lot of people angry at you and don't get us any closer to the goal, it doesn't matter how true it is. It's like doing damage within itself. Now, maybe he's thinking we need to blow it all up. We need to tear it all down. And if that's and if that's the case, tell us what you're doing. Tell us why. Well, you're let me, doing well, let me ask. Doing, let me ask this though. In terms of diversity of voices, maybe sometimes you need, if the goal is to get to Detroit, right? Sometimes you need people to say things that nobody else is going to say to really just like a really hot button issue. It's like everybody's like, whoa, right? Oh my God, I can't believe he said that. Oh, I was kind of thinking that, but I can't believe he said that or she said that. So now we can actually, there's one or two things we can deal with that level of being a, 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 a provocation, right? Being a provocateur is to just deny it and go into denial about it and not talk about it. It's like, you know, Uncle, Uncle Joe, not Uncle Joe Biden, Uncle Hank is an alcoholic and, he, and he's beating his wife. Nobody wants to talk about that. We see it all the time. And then somebody walks in the room is like, man, you a damn alcoholic and stop putting your hands on your wife. And then everybody in the family is like, whoa, what's going on? And so now, we, now the issue is out for everybody to talk about it for those who are not necessarily as provocative to actually begin to deal with the issue. Is there a place for that? Yeah, I think Crouch. I think Crouch was that, wasn't he? I think. I think the. I think the good thing about Crouch and great critics or or people who comment on society is, yeah, you are speaking the truth, like a true believer. But you have a lot of people who speak and say provocative things, and that may be true or not. But their only their only impetus is is the the eyes that will put on them. Right. I don't think. I don't think Crouch was like that. I think he was just speaking his mind. Well, you mm -hmm. know, we grew up in an era where there were no eyes. Right, exactly. Yeah. That too. Because now it's really hard to avoid that. Right. It's almost impossible to avoid. I want to weigh in just one thing. I'm thinking about the comparison with, with Stanley Crouch and Clarence Thomas. I think one major difference, and I can say this about Stanley after having talked to him for so long, Stanley Crouch never denied 
the, the reality of structural racism. I never got the impression that because one of one of one of one of the demarcations with black conservative intellectuals is that they will deny that structural racism exists or that is a factor in our lives. I never got that from Stanley. Now I think Clarence Thomas will be a denier of structural racism. I think his decisions in the Supreme Court that he espouses are in line with there is no structural racism. And I think that's where that, that's a major difference between him and, 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 uh, and Clarence Thomas. Because again, when you look at Stanley's heroes, the majority of the people that he looks up to or he references are African-Americans. Okay. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Duke Ellington, uh, Albert Murray, uh, Ralph Ellison, Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, Andre, you were talking about how he was waxing philosophic about Michelle Obama. So, uh, you know, a lot of black conservatives don't even go that route. So I I think, um, I think, Stanley Crouch was speaking truth as he saw. We can only speak really truth as we see it, you know. Uh, now, the problem with Stanley, sometimes the, the method in which you speak that truth can overshadow what truth you're trying to unveil. And, you know, being human beings being what they are, we can get into a repetitive mode. And sometimes um, the way in which he spoke may have had an alternate effect of there could have been people who liked Stanley for the for the, the the way that he was expressing himself, but not what he was expressing. Right. Well, you know th- that brings up an interesting point. And Stanley Stanley's not of this generation, but we have a generation of folks now who get paid more for how they say stuff as opposed to what they say. And Crouch mm-hmm. had some great things to say, and he said it in a way that people may have liked, who were provocateurs that wanted to have it said that way. But it's the entertainment value, right? Huh? Entertainment value. The entertainment value. But you touched on something there that I want to kick to you, Haroon. The the whole notion of black conservatism, right? And now, if you are a black conservative in today's environment, it's all like it's almost like a cuss word, right? You you can't be a black conservative because somehow or another you you're not down with the cause. You're not down with moving the black uh, black agenda forward. Do you believe that that binary is being placed upon black folks in today's environment? No, absolutely, right? And I mean, it's happening, right? But what you have to look, what you have to look at is, you know, a, a black conservative intentions. A lot of them are being used, right? And, and there's a marketplace for black conservatives just to be a counter voice to whatever's happening with black folks, particularly Black Lives Matter. Right. You know, mm-hmm. in other words, this this is sort of this is like a hustle. You know, if you are a black conservative with any credentials at all, you may get a, a, a paid internship at, at Fox News. Right. You may be a, a paid contributor. And a lot of them is, is in, in, and I think Eugene made up a great point. The real question is you're black, you black and you're conservative. But are you denying reality? Are you denying racism? Are you denying structural racism? And that's, and, that's, and that's a big key difference. And what I find is a lot of the popular black conservatives today, they make it a point to deny structural racism. They, they make it a point to, because this is what they're being paid for, right? This is the entertainment value when they end up on Fox News or even when they're guests on CNN or, or, or MSNBC, 
they're brought on for the save for the sole purpose of denouncing whatever um, you know people in Black Lives Matter and, and people Black folks coming from other views, whatever particular point that they're trying to make. And so, but this, it's a shame because there is a lot of Black conservatives who think what they're thinking. They think that this is in the best interest of Black people. They believe in Black empowerment, and they think the way to get there is to cut yourself off from any kind of social programs, any kind of help, any kind of affirmative action. If, we, if we're but, going to get there one day, we have to go hardcore. But, we have to go but cold turkey. But even, even more fundamental than that, I'm going to kick this to you, Chris. The whole notion, like if you say the words out loud, personal responsibility as a Black person, you might get labeled all kinds of names from the, the sort of the Black Lives Matter progressive crowd. Like personal responsibility, when you say it out loud, and, and it's sort of been code for the absence of structural racism. So talk about the need for how personal, not the need for, but how personal responsibility fits into the overall narrative or, or fits into the overall need for the Negro in terms of how we get to Detroit. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's the same. It's, it seems to be the same thing I'm always saying with everything isn't binary. Like it can be both. You can have personal responsibility and you can acknowledge systemic racism. And mm -hmm. I agree with Haroon when he was saying that with the black conservative and how, you know, when you sit, when you deny, when you deny uh, structural racism, you start climbing the ladder in the Fox news world, you know, because that's just, that's just cause you know, where we are, like that's, that's structural racism itself. Like I think, I forget this dude's name is Howard something. He used to be on ESPN. Oh, you're but talking he's, about Howard. He writes about baseball. What's his name? Uh, Eugene, you know. Howard, uh, dang, I can't think of his name. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, took my tongue. can't think of it right now. Black, oh, but black I know what you're talking about. Yeah, black yeah, guy. Know, he's like bald black guy. He, he writes about baseball a lot. Yeah, I yeah. don't know if he, this is his quote, but I remember he wrote something that said, like, if you can find, like, a black person that'll talk bad about black people, that person will work forever in this country or become famous. It's the same thing. Like, I think mm -hmm. the black conservative side is kind of like, you know, they they got the same goals, truly, I believe, like the whole Clarence Thomas discussion. But it's like how you get there and how fast you get there. And and by saying there's no structural racism, that's a binary argument. And by saying it's all structural racism is a binary argument. I but think the, we got to get in the middle. But the question is, how do we incorporate a message of personal responsibility, particularly to the black community, when that statement automatically in some people's mind puts you in that camp like it's like it seems like we that the personal responsibility aspect of of the the black uh existence the the black intelligentsia the, the negro movement if you will is something that black folks just don't want to hear out loud i i don't agree i think it's just education like like no. take the take the election for instance like like you can't, you can, you can say, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't really care about black people and still look at this situation and cast a vote for the Democratic Party because of what, you're, what, what lies on the other side. That's, that's being in the middle and having a nuanced conversation as opposed to I'm not participating in this because of this, because of structural racism. Like, I think that's just a conversation. Uh, here's, a, here's, a, here's the thing, um, here's the thing, right? Uh, and I get where you're coming from, Dre, because the reality is if you got, some black intellectual who's running around talking about 
and personal responsibility for black folks. So a lot of black folks is, that's code word that I'm about to sell you out. That's code word that I'm about to, that I'm blaming you for being victimized by racism. That's a code word that you're, whatever's happening to you, white folks don't have anything to do with it. That's a code mm -hmm. word that all George Floyd had to do was corroborate with the police and he'll be alive today. And see, right. and so, and it's a tricky thing because Dre is saying, but don't we need to talk about um, personal responsibility? Don't we teach our kids to take personal responsibility? And the only group that I know effectively can talk about that and black folks will listen is, um, is the Nation of Islam, Farrakhan and the crew, right? And, and how do they get it, right? And they do it all the time. If you go to one of their rallies, um, and I used to back in the day, I'm a Sunni Muslim, not a member of the nation. Yeah, right? To clarify that, brother. Orthodox Sebastian. Muslim, for the record, <laughs> right? But back in the day, I used to go to a lot of their rallies, and they would spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about white folks. I mean, putting them down. And they'll spend the mm -hmm. next hours beating up on black folks and telling them what they need to do to turn their life around, what they need to do to be a... Uh, um to be a better human being what they right. do is to be responsible but the trick to them is they recognize they tell right. structural, right. that structural racism and racism racism in all forms is out there it's killing us it's beating us up but their whole thing is you know sitting around playing the blame game is not going to get you anywhere you have to mm -hmm. take your business yourself you have to be responsible even if you're not at fault at all. That's the key thing. And so if you, if other people outside of the nation of Islam that want to get that message across, that's the way to get it across, I think. Well, let me- hey, I want to say, I, want, I just want to piggyback on what you just said. I want to make a, 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 what I think is an important distinction. With black people, when we're talking about conservatism, there are really two kinds of conservatism we're talking about. We're talking about Mostly what we're talking about really is social conservatism, which is much different than actual political conservatism where you have the Kansas Owens and people like that. The Clarence Thomas's, Clarence o Candace Owens, Tom, Thomas Souls, they are political black conservatives where they will, they will, they will, they will, they will, they will deal with and, and sign off on the Republican machinations that, that we have to deal with. But black people have always had a social conservatism that was based on survival, right? We've always had that. I mean, we're we're, we're, we're avant-garde in the arts where we create, but we're also social conservative in some of the things that we want to hold on to that have made us survive uh, 400 years and to use Elijah Muhammad's uh, parlance the, the, the wilderness of North America. So I think we should always be cognizant of which conservatism we're talking about. No, absolutely. That, well, that, you know, that's a great distinction. Yeah, that, because so, all, all the criticism today, and, and certainly from my perspective, is about this political conservatism, right? And, and that's where most black folks, this is where they have the problem. If you talk about a social conservative, Say, if you had some black person who says, I don't believe in abortion, right? I don't believe in promiscuity. I'm for family values and all. I don't believe in shacking up and all these type of things. Most black folks don't have any problem with that type of black conservative. 
It's but when you but when you're when you're a paid, you know, a mercenary to come on Fox News and do a number on black mm -hmm. folks like Candace Owens, right? Then this is where you well, run in run into part, part of the thing of what you talk about is political conservatism is that the Republican agenda, because of the way that they propagate their agenda, is so fundamentally and foundationally racist that anything that's over in that camp that is used as a, an economic or whatever engine to get to Detroit, if you will, is seen as being against the, uh, the best interests of Black folks. And so I, I want to use that to sort of pivot and come back to you, Chris. There's this whole notion of because we are this tribe and we're all sort of trying to get to Detroit, we're trying to get rid of this whole structural racism things that when we have black folks in power who may not necessarily be doing the best job of it or could be doing a better job of it we have this sort of there's a sentiment inside correct me if i'm wrong within the black communities that we need not criticize them publicly and so does that handcuff us in terms of being able to have a true marketplace of ideas because we don't want to have our dirty laundry out there in terms of how we might disagree with one another about how to get to Detroit. No, I think you can criticize them. I think like on the way there, on the ride to Detroit, you know, sometimes criticism can be self-defeating, you know, because a lot of times, you know, why criticize someone that's already being criticized 90% of the time? It's like, you don't need to help. You know, if 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 someone says uh, someone black in power is doing the wrong thing, it's already out there. Why would you jump on it when you know you're going to be criticized for just being there in the first place? I think I think that's what the issue is. But um, but see, but see, I, I I agree with you on that. But see, we also think too that the black community is still in physical segregation. Like that 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 type of idea made sense when we were all physically segregated in one part of the city. You know, and, and and we're and we're saying all this stuff, you know, as if white people don't look at um, they don't look at Twitter. You know, you have a thing called Black Twitter. I mean, we want black people to, to hold a certain line, but we're telling we're telling everybody how we feel about something when we go on Twitter. You know, we're critical of each other on Twitter, and the same people who are critical on Twitter, but well, don't say that, they don't don't say that in mixed company. Well, you've already said it. <laughs> You know, if you look, if you listen, you listen to hip hop. Listen to our popular culture. We we criticize each other all the time, and then no, we don't want. All yeah. <laughs> no, brother Eugene, you're a hundred percent right. You're sitting around trying to solve the problems, and say if this was a conspiracy, and black folks wanted to keep everything on the DL, right? And so mm -hmm. they tell any black person, you're going on TV, you got to keep quiet by X, Y, and Z. You write a book, newspaper, magazine, but the whole time they got all the battle plans on, 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 on Instagram and on Twitter <laughs> and in, in rap music and songs and all of this other stuff. So all of this is out of there. I think the key is, is trying to figure out how to get to Detroit <laughs> with all of that happening because you're not going to stop it. And you're not going to stop the Candace Owens of the world, right? The, the, the question is, is how can you bring these people into your camp? And if you can't bring them into your camp, how can you get where you're going despite the fact that you have their presence, right? I have, an, I have, I have, a, I have a partial answer. I think uh, the days of us bringing Candace Owens into our camp are numbered. 
I, I, because I think it's more important that we create that, you know, Norm Chomsky talks about uh, manufacturing consent. We need to manufacture. And I mean, when I mean manufacture, I mean, when we, the way we raise our children, we need to raise our children and tell them what the history is, tell them what really is going on. We need to have that history repeated in our schools because I was old. Thankfully, I was old enough to grow up in, in a society that had civics in high school, black and white civics. A lot of these kids, a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the political opinions, man, that we see in the hood come from the barbershop. And I'm not trying to disrespect the barbershop, but you know, it's not based on like, I'll give you a perfect example of some of, of, of some of the limitations of a barbershop. I was getting my hair cut in Wilmington, Delaware years ago. I had three books by, I had a book by W.E.B. Du Bois. I had a book by Lelaine Locke. And I had a book by Franz Fanat, and 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 the, the barber could only see the spine, right? You know what the barber told me, man? Why are you reading all the white folks, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, we right, right. We missing the right. on education sometimes for sure. Right, because the, one of the things that I learned, one of the humbling things I learned, you know, you know, when you go to college, especially when you go to Howard, and you're a freshman and you're in this environment of all this black people, and then you take one black study course and you think you got the answer to the revolution in one, in one course, and then you realize, man, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about this 100, almost 100 years ago. My, Marcus Garvey wrote about this 80 years ago. You ain't new. These problems are evergreen with us, and how we deal with them, maybe may, may, we may deal with them from a particular um, viewpoint of where we are in, in, in history, but these problems are evergreen with black people. These, these are sustained problems that will be with us as long as we exist. How we deal with them is, is, is the difference. And, and the other thing about that, Eugene, is that you have to take the totality of the thought of that particular person and look at it in totality because W.E.B. Du Bois was at a much different place at the end of his life when he was at the beginning of his life, particularly as it relates Absolutely. to the talented 10th. And right. Malcolm X was very much at a very different place at this point, a different place in his life after he had gone to Mecca in terms of dealing what he was in the, he was in the nation of Islam. And so what happens is that both of those men get mythologized for a very specific point in their life, not their, not their entire, the continuum of their entire thought process. And so as we, as we wrap up here, because we've been going on a long time here, I want to sort of give each of you a chance to talk about one thing in particular is what is the role of the black critic, and in particular maybe so the conservative black critic, in what we need to do as a people to get to Detroit, to get to a place where we can actually tear down some of the things that are keeping, that have historically kept us uh, down from a uh, from a people standpoint, from a racism standpoint, from all of the isms and schisms that have kept us down over the years, over the 400 plus years that we've been in, as you said, the wilderness of North America. So I'm gonna let Haroon go, Brother Fun go, and I'm, Eugene, I'm gonna give you the last word. Oh, okay, okay. Brother Drake. You know, the what I would like to sum up is something that brother, brother Eugene just hit upon about how chronic a problem that black folks face generation after generation. And some people describe racism as a disease, a chronic disease with no cure, but you can manage it, right? You can live with it and you can manage it. And so the real question is how do we effectively manage it? 
how can we get you know it down to you can't detect it you know like they say they have a drug now that people with hiv they take over a period of time you can't even detect that they have it right and i think that critics this is their job they're sort of the brain trust they put they really are the a reflection of the think tanks and i think they're the keeping that goal in mind and dealing with this situation that black folks faced from day one 400 years ago 16 19 401 years ago right this oppression and and coming up with a, with with some workable plausible solutions to to increase the quality of life for black folks um I think that that's the role of the critic, the black critic. Brother Chris? Uh, I think the role is, and I think, I think Stanley Crouch was good for this. The, uh, it's, just, it's, just a, it's just humanity. It's like artists and critics. I think they should live right in the middle of this binary, this, this mythical binary world we live in. And I think if a critic is truly interested in humanity and themselves, if they can, when they eliminate the fact that I can say something crazy to get looks or to be profitable, they can eliminate that and just speak truthful. What they're what they're serving is a, as as is a voice. So if you're a black critic and you're truly giving your truth and voice, you're putting a voice of an authentic black person living in America and their ideas and their critiques on life. You're putting that on a stage in front of the entire country. You're you're, you're presenting a voice that isn't heard much. Number one. And I think like everything else, if you hear something, if you're educated about something, it breaks down the fear of something. So if a black man can be just truthful and not be worried about profit, I know that's hard. Not be worried about controversy, I know that's hard. But I think that is the value of the black critic, just to give the black voice the space to be heard, period. You know, And I think we get, it, gets, it gets twisted with the Candace Owens and everything and the Kanye and the, sometimes the Cornell West we start doing, we start speaking, knowing that we can rile people up and get attention. I think a lot of that starts to cloud the conversation. And then we start looking at caricatures of black people instead of true authentic voices. Brother Eugene, you got I the think, last word. I think the role of the black critic uh, is several. I think one role is to, is to hold up a really legitimate mirror of who and what we really are in all the myriad uh, inventions and dimensions of black people, because we're not, we're not monolithic, but at the same time, the critic also has to remind us what binds us together. And what binds us together is not necessarily what white people think we are, because a lot of times we as black people, our base identity accept what white people think about us as our own identity. You've heard this phrase, well, he didn't know he was black, so he got pulled over by the police. So that policeman has the, has the power to define your whole cultural existence, you know, only because he has, he has the power to pull you over. That doesn't mean he has the power to define who you are. And sometimes we see that sometimes like in our, in our, uh, in our acceptance of the one drop rule, something that doesn't scientifically exist, something that we didn't create. We accept that the, 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 the proudest black, the proudest black American and the Ku Klux Klan will agree on the one drop rule, which I think is absurd. So I think that the critic also, while holding up a mirror, also should provide examples 
of what we can do to overcome and deal with the, some of the systemic problems that we have. And the deal, the, the critic is to say, okay, look, we have the human capacity to deal with these challenges. Uh, we, we, we're not perfect, but we can perfect. We have the power to perfect uh, the imperfectible as much as we can. That's what I think the critics should do, the black critic. Well, all right, that another one in the can, another Hank and Herb show in the can. But I lied. I'm not going to give you the last word, Brother Eugene. I'm going to give Stanley Krauss the last word. And it's the way that he actually ended almost all of his correspondence with his, with people. And when he signed the book or whatever, he put three small letters in there, V-I-A, victory is assured. So we're going to get to Amen. Detroit, Chris. We're going to get to Detroit, because <laughs> Stanley said so, because victory is assured. All right, good people. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you, Brother Haroon. Thank you, Brother Chris. And a special thanks to Eugene Holly Jr. Check out his piece on The Undefeated and check out all of his other works. Google him. This brother has done a lot of good writing out there, a lot of good reviews. He's one of the good ones. He's a good critic out there that's actually holding that mirror up for us to see ourselves in the way that we actually are. All right, until next time, we'll see you. Stay blessed, be peaceful, and have a beautiful day. Later.